0: Let's pray. Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Having heard that Bible reading, you may wonder, well, am I going to talk about today, you know, so-called success, the so-called success of being married? You know, wives, submit to your husbands. That's a whole Sunday sermon, isn't it? Husbands, love your wives. That's another whole Sunday sermon. Children, obey your parents. That's a month. (laughs) Fathers, don't bug your kids. Another whole month. (laughs) But I'm not going to talk about any of those today you see that we're in this series called American Idols, and we've been talking about various idols so far of materialism and pleasure. And today we want to turn our attention to what I would call so-called success. You know, Americans love success. There's no question about it. We idolize it. And because we do idolize success, there are times when we even idolize our jobs. And it's kind of interesting that as we... Uh, talk about work and career, most people kind of swing between two different extremes, at least I found out. Uh, On one hand, we kind of worship our career, we obsess about our work, and we define who we are by what we do and how much we make. It even happens in the church. I remember this a couple years ago. I I was at a pastor's conference, sat at a table with a bunch of pastors, have never met any of them before, And one of them looked at me across the table and said, so, do you have a successful ministry? And I said, yeah, I guess so. He said, so how much money do you make? And I said, in all honesty, I don't really know. He said, what do you mean you don't know? I said, I don't know. (laughs) I'm really not concerned about how much money I make. You You know, twice a month I get a paycheck, that's twice a month my wife calls me handsome. I bring home a check, she says, hand some over. <laughs> we actually had direct deposit, to be quite honest. I had no idea how much money I made. And he said, well, come on, make a guess. How much money do you make? And I thought, I don't know. I, I, I finally said $50,000. And he said, and you call that successful? That It even creeps into the church. We define ourselves by what we do and how much money we make. On the other hand, there is a whole great portion of America who absolutely hate their jobs. They hate showing up for work. They hate each day. They wish that they could do anything else in the world except for what it is that they're doing right now. And somewhere in the middle, there's another group of us who kind of fall into both categories. We really don't like our jobs very much, but we keep pouring our hearts into it day in and day out. Now, I've got to tell you that all three approaches are rather unhealthy. So let me start by asking this question today. What's the problem with career worship? What's the, what's the problem with worshiping our jobs? Well, the Bible says that it is idol worship if we worship our jobs, and there are at least four things wrong with it. One, of it. one of the reasons is this. It causes you to work for that which you cannot keep. I mean, think about that for a moment. In other words, you can't take it with you. As Pastor Chuck Swindoll said one time, when was the last time you ever saw a U-Haul trailer in a funeral procession? You cannot take it with you. All you do is you leave it behind for other people to use. Look what, look what Solomon, the smartest, richest man in the world, had to say. He said, I'm disgusted that I must leave the fruits of my hard work to others. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish, and yet they will control everything I've gained by my skill and hard work how meaningless in other words parents if you're accumulating a lot of money you're leaving it in the hands of your kids and god only knows what they're going to do with it good or bad i mean usa today not long ago reported that many wealthy americans i'm talking about these really wealthy americans like like uh, uh warren buffett or whoever have decided not to leave the bulk of their money to their children now I don't know, maybe that's it. they've read too many Paris Hilton stories. Now, I don't know that there's anybody here in this church who has enough money to put their heirs at risk of turning into the Hilton sisters, but I think we can all relate to the fact that we all work sometimes to leave it behind for other people to use. So I'm just telling you, first of all, if all you're do- doing in life, is all, if all you work for in life is money and all you leave behind is money, You've given your life to something that you can't even take with you. Here's the second thing that the Bible talks about. It says it ruins relationships. You know, when you put your career first, everything else then comes second. Look again what Solomon has to say here. Uh, Solomon says, this is the case of a man who is all alone, without child or brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself... Who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It is all so meaningless and depressing. I remember the earliest days of my life as a teacher when I'd get up in the mornings before my kids were awake and I'd come home at night often after my kids were in bed. And, you know, sometimes on a Friday late afternoon, I'd be walking back home and the kids would run down to the end of the block and they'd go, Daddy's home, Daddy's home, and I thought that was really cool until it dawned on me one day that they were just so excited because they hadn't seen me all week long. You know, are you giving so much time to your job that you're not spending time with the ones that you were called to love? Some of you are familiar with Don Henley. He's a member of the band Eagles. Uh, there's a song that if I could sing it, I would have sung it today. I don't know if it's a favorite song of mine, but it's called The Heart of the Matter." And in that song, there's a line that every working spouse ought to commit to memory. The song is about a failed relationship. I just want to read you a little bit of the song. He he writes, Pride and self-assurance cannot fill these empty arms. And the work I put between us, it doesn't keep me warm. So I'm learning to live without you now. What a sad song that this man's work put distance between him and the one he loved. Here's a third reason that the Bible says the idol worship is wrong. It leads to an inaccurate perception of success. Many of you know who Ray Romano is. He played Raymond in that uh, television show, Everybody Loves Raymond. He was one of the highest paid actors in all of television, but he somehow felt as if it was never enough. And when the show finally went off after nine very successful seasons, Ray shared his heart with the audience on the very last day of filming. He read them a note that his brother had stuck in his suitcase the day he moved from New York to Hollywood years before. This is what his brother's note said, or this is what he said. My older brother Richard wrote, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And then Ray Romano said with tears in his eyes, so now I need to go and work on my soul. You know, Solomon must have felt much the same way when he said, but as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was just meaningless. It was like chasing after the wind. What good does it do if you got everything in the world, but you don't have Jesus? There's a fourth thing, and it, it just makes you smug. You know, Jesus told a lot of parables. I just want to read one of them to you. It comes from Luke chapter 12. It says that a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. In fact, his barns were full to overflowing. So he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'll tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. Then I'll have room to store everything, and then I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy eat, drink, and be merry. You probably wonder where that ever came from. That's from the Bible. He said, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get it all? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Now friends, I want to tell you, I I told you before, God is not anti-materialism, material. God is not anti-pleasure, and God is certainly not anti-success. There's really nothing wrong with success or being well-paid or loving your job. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I think I'm well-paid. I love my job, I think that's a gift from God. But Solomon said, I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction in work, then I realize that this pleasure is what? It's there from the hand of God. See, on the one hand, Solomon says, work is meaningless. On the other hand, he says, but don't forget, it's a gift of God. So what's the difference? What's the difference between a meaningless job and one that's a gift of God? Well, I think the difference is what comes first. You know, when you work and you pay, when work and pay and recognition and status become your top priority then your career demonstrates idol worship this leads to greed, it leads to frustration it leads to disappointment, ultimately to isolation don't worship your job or your career now how do you destroy this idol? well every week I've, I've told you something slightly different you know, you destroy materialism with the spiritual power of contentment. You learn to be content with what God has given you. You destroy pleasure with that spiritual power of hope, and you destroy success through mastering that spiritual power of missional living. That means living with a mission. I mean, if I would ask you, you guys are right down here in the front row, I might as well ask you, I mean, what on earth are you guys doing here anyway? I'm not talking about sitting in the front row. I'm not talking about wasting people's oxygen. But it's like, why in the world did God put you here? For what reason? What is your mission in life? Now, granted, when you're 14 or 15 or whatever, the answer to that question is, I don't know. Or maybe I had never thought about it before, or I kind of think this... But that's a hard question, even for old folks like Mark and Laura. <laughs> you know, what's your mission in life? Now, I have a sneaking feeling Laura would say something because she wants to make me happy. <laughs> well, no, let's start with Mark. She said, part of my mission in life is to please Mark, to love Mark, to honor Mark, to do those things that would enhance him as a husband, as a but I think you'd also say, well, part of my mission in life is to be with kids, to help them, to encourage them. That's part. Now, you know, what is your mission in life? I'm not going to pick on Jason, but Jason, I know you own a business. Ted, I know you own a business. Somewhere in there, a lot of businesses have mission statements. Is why are you there? What are you doing? You know, who are we there to serve? And that's what we're talking about. Why did God put us where he put us? Now, um, we need to redefine success. See, success is not determined by wealth or position. It's by what you accomplish in Jesus' name for the long-term benefit of other people. I mean, think about that. What are you accomplishing in the name of Jesus for the long-term benefit of other people? You know, when you define success that way, then it's absolutely sinful not to pursue it. Now, how do you develop a missional mindset? I'm going to give you a couple of things. I'm going to share a story with you to end First of all, I think all of us need to view our jobs in terms of who you serve. You need to answer the question. Now, some of you, again, I'm gonna start here in the front. You guys really don't have jobs, per se, except that you're called students. It's called school. And you are really there to serve other people. You know, ask the question, for whose benefit am I here? You know, am I God's gift to this school? I doubt it, Courtney. (laughs) But I'm here to serve, in the name of Jesus, my fellow students, to serve my teacher, my teachers, whatever. I mean, we can answer the question that way. I mean, if you ask that question honestly, for whose benefit are you here? You know, Wayne, as you work in the area of finance, for whose benefit are you there? You know, Mark, as you train... You know, people in the business aspects, you know, for whose benefit are you there? I can guarantee you that if you answer that question honestly, the answer will never be, I'm here for my own benefit. That will never be your answer, that you're there just to serve yourself. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 23, the greatest among you must be what? Servant. Your job is somehow to serve somebody else you identify who that somebody is or that someone or those some people, and you do all you possibly can in the name of Jesus, you do something for their benefit. We sometimes call it ministry. I mean, ministry to me is simply doing whatever you can do for other people in the name of Jesus. And when you can figure that out, you're going to find that you're going to be very successful in what you do. So if I could go back to that table of pastors who said, you know, that $50,000, whatever, wasn't very successful, I would like to be able to look them back in the eye again today and say, you know, I think I am successful because I have committed my life to serving other people in the name of Jesus for their eternal benefit. Now, you might say, well, that's pretty easy because you're a pastor. But I'd say it's easy for you, no matter who you are, to have that missional mindset to say, I'm here to serve other people in the name of Jesus for their eternal benefit. The other, second thing is to view your job as a gift from God. I had a hard time believing. I had to go back and look at this a couple of times. And I, I found a, a study that Fox News had done that reported that up to 87% of the people in America do not like their jobs. I was stunned and I, I, I went back and double checked it. 87% of the people in America don't like their jobs. And I'm thinking, man. That's a lot of people. Now, I'm not sure how they asked the question or anything like that. And you, and, but I saw they had all kinds of reasons why people don't particularly like their job. Some people say they're overworked and underpaid or they're underappreciated. I mean, Paul recommends a totally different approach in Colossians 3. This is something Matt read to you before. He said, work hard and cheerfully at what you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than people. See, here's what I would suggest. You know, instead of dreaming about greener pastures someplace else, try approaching your job with an attitude of contentment and an attitude of devotion. I mean, maybe you are working for a boss who's totally clueless. You know, maybe you're not being paid what you're worth. Maybe your efforts do go unnoticed by the powers that be. To that, I just say, so what? And remember, it's God the father that you ultimately work for. God is your real boss, whether you're a student in school, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you are retired and have influence on other people in the community, whether you're a pastor or a DCE or whether you're you're in the construction business or whether you're doing plumbing or whether you're doing finances, whether you're teaching, whether you're farming I don't care what it is, God is your boss is God to whom you work I mean God notices when you show up on time God notices when you show up a little early God notices when you give a hundred percent God notices when you sacrifice free time to get a project done God notices when you come to work not necessarily feeling a hundred percent God notices when you maybe sometimes get unfairly criticized God notices sometimes when you don't get the credit that you deserve Jesus says very simply, Matthew 6, 18, and your Father who knows all secrets will reward you. Who's your boss? God the Father's your boss. The third thing is to do your job with the eyes on eternity. The fact is that there are a lot of aspects of a lot of jobs that are frustratingly temporal. You know, straightening up a bookshelf or, you know, mark color coordinating neckties at dillards, uh, (laughs) It doesn't seem like that's going to ultimately change the world. I mean, sometimes it's kind of hard to, uh, to get excited about the mundane details of life, but it's like that in every job you will ever have. Instead, just kind of look at the aspects of your life that will honestly last. Look at how you can impact other people's lives in the name of Jesus on a long-term basis. Paul said to the Corinthians, all athletes practice self-control. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal cause. I want to close the day by reading a story to you. I'm hoping I will be able to make it all the way through this story without crying. And I say that because I've only read this story one other time before, and I couldn't make it through. But I think that this story is an example of one person who lived a missional life, who decided for herself ahead of time that she was going to do whatever she could do in the name of Jesus for the eternal benefit of someone else. The story is about a school teacher by the name of Mrs. Thompson. As Mrs. Thompson stood in front of her fifth grade class on that very first day of school, she told the children a lie. Like most teachers, she looked at her students and said, she loved them all the same. But that was impossible because there slumped in the front row was a little boy named Teddy Stollard. Mrs. Thompson had watched Teddy the year before and had noticed that he did not play very well with the other children. His clothes were messy, and he constantly smelled like he needed a bath. And Teddy was very unpleasant. It got to the point where Mrs. Thompson would actually take great delight in marking his papers with a broad red pen, making bold X's, and then putting a great big F at the top of his paper. Now, At the school where Mrs. Thompson worked, it was required of all teachers to write reports about their students at the end of the year. And she put Teddy's report off to the very last. But when she reviewed his file, she was in for a really big surprise. Teddy's first grade teacher wrote, Teddy is a bright child with a ready laugh. He does his work neatly and has good manners. He's a joy to be around. His second grade teacher wrote, Teddy is an excellent student, well liked by his classmates, but he is troubled because his mother has a terminal illness and life at home must be a struggle. His third grade teacher wrote, his mother's death has been hard on him. He tries to do his best, but his father doesn't show much interest, and his home life will soon affect him if some steps aren't taken. Teddy's fourth grade teacher wrote, Teddy is withdrawn, and he doesn't show much interest. He doesn't have many friends, and sometimes he even sleeps in class. By now, Mrs. Thompson realized the problem, and she was ashamed of herself. She even felt even worse when her students brought her Christmas presents wrapped in beautiful ribbons and bright paper, except for Teddy. Teddy's present was clumsily wrapped in the heavy brown paper that he'd gotten from a grocery bag. Mrs. Thompson took pains to open it up in the middle of the other presents. Some of the students started to laugh when she found a rhinestone bracelet with some stones missing and a bottle one quarter full of perfume. But she stifled the children's laughter when she exclaimed how beautiful that bracelet was. And she put it on and she even dabbed some of that perfume on herself. And Teddy stayed after school that day just long enough to say, Mrs. Thompson, today you smelled just like my mom used to. And after the children left that day, Mrs. Thompson cried. And on that day, she quit teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Instead, she began to teach children. Mrs. Thompson paid particular attention to Teddy. And as she worked with him, his mind seemed to come alive. And the more she encouraged him, the faster and better he responded. By the end of the year, Teddy had become one of the smartest children in that class. And despite her lie that she would love all the children the same, Teddy became teacher's pet. A year later, she found a note under her door from Teddy telling her that she was still the best teacher he ever had in his whole life. Six years went by before she got another. Teddy wrote that he had finished high school, third in his class. And she was still the very best teacher he had ever had in his whole life. Four years after that, she got another letter saying that while things had been tough at times, he'd stayed in school, but he'd stuck with it. And he would soon graduate from college with the highest of honors. And he assured Mrs. Thompson that she was still the best, and she was still his favorite teacher of all times. Then four more years passed, and yet another letter came. This time, he explained that after he got his bachelor's degree, he decided to go on a little bit further. The letter explained that she was still the best and the most favored teacher he ever had, but now his name was a little bit longer, Theodore F. Stallard, MD. You know, the story doesn't end there. You see, there was yet another letter that spring. Teddy said he'd met this girl, and he was going to be married. He explained that his father had died a couple of years before, and he was wondering if Mrs. Thompson would agree to sit in the place at the wedding that was usually reserved for the mother of the groom. And of course, Mrs. Thompson did. And guess what? She wore that bracelet, that one with the rhinestones missing, and she even made sure that she was wearing some of that perfume that Teddy had given her that Teddy remembered his mother wearing on their last Christmas together. They hugged each other and Dr. Stallard whispered in Mrs. Thompson's ear, Thank you, Mrs. Thompson, for believing in me and making me feel important and for showing me that I could make a difference. Mrs. Thompson with tears in her eyes whispered back, Teddy, you have it all wrong. You are the one that taught me that I could make a difference. I didn't know how to teach until I met you. Friends, when I hear that story again, it teaches us the difference that we can honestly make in the lives of other people. You know, No matter what your job is, no matter what your career may be, you have a mission. You have been called by God to encourage and influence other people in the name of Jesus. It's your mission that defines you. It's not your bank account. It's not your success at work. Your mission involves serving other people for the glory of God. And I pray that you find that mission and you pursue it with all your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us into your family. We thank you for encouraging us telling us how much you love us. We pray that we not get so consumed with life, the material things of life, the pleasurable things of life, the work side of life, that we fail to remember that we have been called to serve you. And in so doing, we serve others in your name for their eternal benefit. In Jesus' name, amen.